Welcome to this Upula audio production of X Marks the Spy by Jack Lancer, Volume 5, Chapter 13, Fancy Footwork. Chris darted across the room and tugged at the door, locked as he had feared, and nothing short of a fire axe or a battering ram could break through those heavy timbers. He fought down a wave of panic. No use shouting for help because nobody could hear him anyway. He was so high up in the tower, except for the chiller. Turn blue, you creep, he muttered. Unfortunately, he himself must be turning blue by now, Chris reflected. The temperature had fallen to at least zero. A fit of uncontrollable shivering seized him. The windows. At least the air outside would be warmer than this stone-walled icebox. Chris reached the nearest casement and fumbled at the latch with numbed fingers. As the window swung open, he gulped greedily at the warmth of the April night. By comparison with the frigid chamber, it was like basking in front of a cozy fireplace. But the inside temperature was plummeting still farther. Peering out the narrow window, Chris found that it faced away from the chateau. From the sill, there was a sheer drop down the full length of the tower. The other window may overlook the main roof of the chateau, thought Chris. He rushed to the other casement and yanked it open. Three or four feet below the window sill lay the steeply sloping chateau roof. Chris hoisted himself up onto the sill and thrust out one leg. This was going to be tricky. Better not think about it too much. Clutching the sill for support, he squirmed out backwards and withdrew his other leg. Slowly, inch by inch, Chris eased himself downward, towing the air for a foothold. A hissing sigh of relief escaped his lips as his right foot found the sloping surface of the roof. And not a moment too soon. The door inside the chamber was creaking open. His enemy must have heard him going out the window, or was it enemies? The rush of footsteps sounded like more than one man. Chris shrank back on one side of the window, flattening himself against the tower wall and clawing at its stone surface for support. Presently, a white hooded figure craned low out of the open casement. The covered head turned to peer across the roof, displaying ghastly-looking eye holes. Chris reached up and dealt a karate blow across the side of the man's neck. He slumped like a sack of flour. As the man sagged, Chris's hand brushed scaly, slick crystals of ice from the surface of the hood. Now he could see rays of light gleaming inside the chamber. So his hunch had been right. The hooded enemy was not alone. The unconscious man had fallen across the sill, head dangling. Slowly his white-clad form was pulled back into the room. Evidently his companion was dragging him out of the way to gain access to the narrow window. Chris tensed himself breathlessly. His left hand groped inside his robe for the anesthetic pen, ready to zing off a sleepy sliver the instant a second man appeared at the window. Instead, the light went out. Chris breathed slowly and deeply, trying to keep calm. Agonizing moments dragged by and still nothing. He's going to wait me out, Chris realized. The teen agent peered through the moonlit darkness. He was perched only a few feet from the edge of the steeply pitched slate roof. Beyond, except for a narrow stone gutter, there was nothing but empty air and a sudden plunge if he lost his balance. Chris began to perspire. What a spot to be in. And no way down with the tower chamber where his unseen enemy lay in wait. 
If only he had worn his street shoes with the rocket hopper soles. No use crying about that now. His one hope was to figure some way out of this precarious position. Again, Chris peered around. Twenty feet away, a dormer window protruded from the roof. If he could reach that, he might be able to open the window and squirm inside. However, getting there would be the problem. He would have to teeter his way along the edge of the roof, in full view of his enemy at the tower window. More minutes passed as Chris debated the odds. How much longer could he go on clinging to his present desperate spot? His nerves were wire-taut. I'm just going to have to chance it, Chris decided. Gripping his anesthetic pen, he lowered himself to a sprawling position on hands and knees. Cautiously, he slithered downward until one foot came to rest in the trough of the stone gutter. Well, here's hoping it holds. As Chris brought his other foot down, a roof slate suddenly came loose. It clattered off the roof and over the rim of the gutter with a noise that sounded to his ears like a mountain avalanche. A white-hooded figure popped into sight at the tower window. Chris jerked up his anesthetic pen and took aim, but before he could press the clip, the man withdrew again. Chris's heart was thumping, his breath coming in quick, nervous gasps. He closed his eyes for a moment to regain control of himself, then began inching his way step by step along the gutter toward the dormer window. His progress was agonizingly slow. He dared not think of the awful gulf of empty space behind and beneath him. Don't lose your cool, boy, Chris muttered. Beads of cold sweat were trickling down his face and chest. He was beginning to shiver again. Was it just the chill from his? With a shock of fear, Chris realized the truth. His whole body was growing cold, his fingers turning numb. The same thing was happening again as in the tower room. The same thing that had happened to Anson on the picnic ground at Funland. Chris shot another glance at the tower window. The hooded figure could no longer be seen, and he was there all right. I'm not going to make it, Chris realized. He was shivering too violently. The distance to the dormer window was too far. Soon his numbed fingers would no longer be able to clutch the roof for support. He took a deep breath, steeling himself to glance downward, and then turned his head and peered over his shoulder. Far below rippled the moon-silvered waters of the river. The steep cliff bank at the foot of the chateau was almost vertical, but not quite. How deep was the water at this point? Could he clear the outcroppings of rock along the bank? Balancing himself delicately along the roof, Chris shifted his right foot toward his left one, then turned slowly until he was facing outward. Slowly he pushed himself upright, for a moment, the teen agent poised at the edge of the gutter as he thrust his hands out in front of him. Then Chris flung himself through the air in a graceful swan dive. His robe billowed like a flapping sail as he arced downward and outward from the chateau wall. Down, down, down. Chris was hurtling at bullet speed as he hit the water with a mighty splash. In the garden on the other side of the chateau, the splash went unheard, lost in the blaring music of the orchestra and the chatter of the party guests. Meanwhile, Spice had been watching the servant, Mouton. She had seen him pass between a double row of hedges carrying a tray of empty plates 
yet he failed to reappear at the other end of the row. Puzzled, she went to look. The twin hedges formed a sort of enclosed alleyway leading up the hillside toward the chateau. The area was shadowed in darkness by the overhanging branches of trees. Mouton was nowhere in sight. Well, he certainly didn't disappear into thin air, Spice told herself angrily. She moved forward up the slope toward the hedges. Suddenly she stopped short in the gloom. A strange glow was coming from the ground just ahead. As Spice walked closer, she saw the source. A pit-like opening from which a short flight of three or four steps led down into the hillside. So that's where he disappeared. Intrigued, the red-haired teen agent went down the steps. She was in a brick-walled tunnel, dimly lit by a few naked bulbs. Presumably the tunnel led into the cellars of the chateau. I guess it must be a utility entrance for servants, Spice decided. She walked slowly forward. Farther on, the passageway branched into three separate tunnels. Now what? Should she turn back and wait for Mouton to reappear? Spice's feminine curiosity was aroused. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, she whispered, then gave up the routine and decided to explore the right-handed branch. The passage curved. Her steps echoed hollowly on the flagstone floor. In a few moments, she came to a stout wooden door. Spice tried the handle, but the door was locked. Had she made the wrong choice? Surely Mouton would not have bothered to lock it if the servants were using this route to and fro as they serve the guests. On the other hand, Spice thought, he may be up to something fishy. Groping in her evening bag, she took out a slender steel tool and deftly picked the lock in the approved fashion taught by the ex-safecracker who instructed all teen agents on locks, keys, and combinations. The door opened on well-oiled hinges, and beyond lay pitch darkness. Spice stepped through the doorway, switching on her pocket flashlight. Yow! What a perfect spot for ghouls, she thought. She was in an ancient vaulted stone cellar festooned with cobwebs. A moment later, Spice stiffened in horror. Those noises! Was she hearing things? Her flesh crawled as they came again. Queer, jabbering, slavering noises. Half-human, half-animal. Chapter 14 Ask Me No Questions Chris's plunge carried him deep below the surface of the river. The robe hampered his movements, and he doffed it clumsily underwater. Better not come up just yet, he thought. Those white-hooded goons might be waiting to put the chill on me again. What was the secret of their fiendish trick? Anson had been iced quickly in the space of a few moments. Chris had been luckier. At first, while he was locked in the tower chamber, the chiller's men had not known his exact position, so they were forced to chill the whole room, Chris reasoned. Only later, when the second thug had him clearly in sight on the roof, had the chill come on fast. This seemed to indicate that their gimmick, whatever it might be, could be aimed precisely. Chris surfaced cautiously, showing only his head above the water. He was out of the moonlit area in the shadow of the chateau walls. It was difficult to make out much at the top of the tower, but he could see nothing that looked like a white hood at either window. Nonetheless, Chris emerged again and swam upriver a little distance from the chateau before coming ashore. 
The bank was lower and gentler here, shadowed by drooping willows and shrubbery. Higher up the slope, huge ancient oak trees screened the glow of lanterns from the chateau garden. Chris dragged himself out of the water, shivering in his wet clothes. Oh, great, he murmured to himself. How do I explain this to my host and the other guests? Tell them I took a little dip in the fish pond? He twirled the stem of his wristwatch to transmit position and gave it one pull. After a few moments, the voice of Geronimo responded in Apache. That you, Chunde? Chris explained his plight. Geronimo listened and growled. Why didn't you call me before? So you could get iced too? What would have been the point of that? Okay, fine, stay put. I'll see what I can do. Chris scrubbed off what was left of the dark stain on his face and hands. Then he huddled in the shadows, waiting to hear from his partner. His heart did a flip-flop as a voice behind him suddenly barked. You're under arrest, no swimming allowed. Jerry. Chris went limp with relief as he made out the Apache's white-toothed grin in the leafy gloom. What are you trying to do, give me a heart attack? Just testing. You better watch it, boy. In Apache country, you'd be strung up by the heels over a slow fire by now. That might not be a bad idea in these wet clothes. What have you got there? Geronimo hunkered down under the willows. Something dry for you to put on. Chris unrolled the bundle, which included a white dinner jacket, black evening trousers, shirt-tying cummerbund. For Pete's sake, where'd you get these? Ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. See how they fit. Chris stripped off his sodden clothes and dressed hastily in the outfit which Geronimo had brought. The garments fitted pretty well, except that the pants were a bit loose. As Chris transferred his waterproof emergency kit from his discarded wet cummerbund to the new one, he said, Okay, now stop being so coy and tell me where all this came from. Well, if you gotta know... I left Falud's pal back on the bushes in his skivvies. Chris gave a low whistle. Conscious? Let's just say his eyes were closed. Geronimo shrugged. You know, a slight thumb squeeze at the proper pressure point, below the ear. In the middle of a garden party? Relax, nobody sees an Apache who doesn't want to be seen. I waited till he was standing near some nice dark bushes. Great, and what happens when he comes to... Look, White Eyes, Geronimo said severely. For a guy who just got water cured, you ask a lot of questions. Valu's a red agent, and his pal's in the same line of work, so let's not worry if their feelings get hurt. Wait till I show you what I found in his pocket. The Apache held up a small metal key close to his flashlight. Chris's eyes widened. The key was stamped with the Greek letter Omega. Wow! So now we know who zapped Trakay and raided the jewelry shop. Anything else? I left his wallet back in the bushes, said Geronimo. His name's Barone. He was carrying this news clipping. Chris unfolded the clipping. It had been cut from a well-known French communist newspaper and told how the President of the United States would soon fly to Europe with a dozen top advisors for an important international conference. Well, that's interesting, said Chris. I guess this settles which team he's on, all right. What I'd like to know is whether he and Valud were the goons who tried to ice me in the tower. 
"'Maybe,' said Geronimo. "'I spotted Barone coming out of the chateau right after you buzzed me for room service. "'Valoud was in the main hall, admiring that big tapestry.' "'Chris frowned. "'How about our three X's?' "'Geronimo shook his head. "'I doubt if any of them could have done it. "'I've been watching Fernak all along, "'and I saw Ravatsky out in the garden about five minutes before you called.' Of course, that leaves Mouton, but I assume Spice has been watching him. Well, let's go find her. But first, we better stash these wet clothes in the car. The two youths made their way furtively to the parking area and deposited the bundled-up garments in the Alfa Romeo. Then they returned to the garden. Spice was nowhere in sight. I'll call her, Chris said. In the shadow of a clump of trees, he signaled with, Two short buzzes on his wrist communicator. Faster one, Spice's voice replied. She seemed to be speaking in an urgent whisper. Kingston one and two, where are you? Some sort of cellar. It's creepy. Spice hastily related how she had trailed Mouton through the hedge alley and into the underground tunnel entrance. I came to three branching tunnels and took the right hand. Her voice broke off suddenly in a stifled scream. Faint, confused noises followed. Come on, Chris exclaimed. She may be in trouble. Over that way, said Geronimo. There's the head she was talking about. The boys made their way quickly among the garden party guests and darted between the double row of hedges. They had just descended the stairs into the underground tunnel when Spice came running toward them. Her face was white with shock and fear. What happened? Chris asked, taking her arm. Later! Spice gasped. Let's get out of here first. All three teenagers turned and hurried from the tunnel. Slowing their pace, they found a secluded garden bench and sat down. Spice was still panting. Okay, take it easy, said Chris. What did you find down there? Cobwebs, mostly. The place looked like Dracula's favorite dining room. Then I heard noises. What kind? Spice shuddered. They were horrible. I can hardly describe them. Sort of a gibbering. I couldn't tell whether it was animal or human. Couldn't you see where the noises were coming from? Geronimo put in. She shook her head. I started searching, but it was slow going with just my small flashlight. There were huge wine casks and some old stone coffins with figures of the dear departed carved on top. Also some old medieval torture devices. There was an Iron Maiden in a rack. Is that what made you scream? Chris asked. Spice looked at him scornfully. I am not afraid of spooks, my dear Christopher. It just happens that a flock of ferocious-looking bats came swooping out of the darkness. One flew right at me. I had to fight it off. Spice shuddered again at the recollection. It wasn't only the bats, she went on. I heard steps coming through the darkness, so I decided it was high time to powder out of there. Chris and Geronimo looked at each other with puzzled frowns. What makes gibbering noises? Chris asked thoughtfully. Well, Q does sometimes when he gets real peeved, said Geronimo. But I don't suppose he was down there. Maybe it was the bats, although they just squeak as far as I know. Well, these were ghastly. Spice's voice quivered. The, the, the way they came swooping toward me. You probably disturbed one of their nesting places when you were shining your flashlight around, said Chris. Maybe, Spice sounded doubtful. 
I know I was worked up and all that, but somehow these didn't seem like ordinary bats. Oh, if I hadn't swatted one with my shoe, he might have bitten me. There's also the question of what Mouton was doing down in that tunnel, Chris added. I think the main tunnel must lead to the chateau kitchens, said Geronimo. I noticed other servants with trays coming and going between those hedges earlier in the evening. Meanwhile, the Count's feat was gradually drawing to a close. As Chris related his adventures in the tower to Spice, a few of the guests began to leave. Presently, the teen agents noticed Valud wandering around the grounds as if looking for his companion. Uh-oh, I think we'd better scram, said Chris. If Barone comes staggering out of the bushes in his underwear, there's apt to be trouble. Spice giggled nervously. We might miss out on the high point of the party if that happens. But I suppose you're right. Somebody may call the gendarmes. Chris got up from the garden bench. Let's blow before the excitement starts. Spice excused herself to Madame Avril and the three, hurried to the parking area without bothering to take leave of their host. Chris opened the door of the Alfa Romeo for Spice, and he suddenly stiffened in alarm. His bundle of wet clothes was gone. Chapter 15 Orders in Code Somebody heisted my wet clothes, said Chris. Was there anything in the pockets? Spice asked. Chris shook his head. That's not what's worrying me. What is then? Those clothes were a dead giveaway that I'm the phony African who dived off the tower. Oh dear. Spice's emerald green eyes widened anxiously. How much can they deduce from that? Plenty if he knows anything about that X mark on the chart. All he has to do is put two and two together. This could finger me as the agent who came here to contact X. The teen agents eyed one another uneasily. There's also the 50 G's, said Geronimo. Or maybe I should say there was. Spice gasped. See if all the money's still in the secret compartment. Not now, Chris said. Hop in. We'll stop along the road and check. A moment later, the car was speeding down the hillside driveway from the chateau. Anyone on our tail? The Apache muttered. Chris looked. No sign unless he's running without lights. On the highway between Bressy and Madame Avril's Lycée, Chris pulled over among some trees. Geronimo flipped back the carpeting and pressed the release button. The panel covering the secret compartment slid open. Spice let out a sigh of relief as she saw the zippered case lying safely inside. Let's make sure the Walton's still there, Geronimo said cautiously. He unzipped the leather case. Inside were neat packets of currency. Okay, we're financially solvent. Chris grinned dryly. Boy, imagine explaining that to Q if we weren't. I hate to bring this up, said Spice, but you still have the small problem of which X to contact. I know, and I hate to have you bring it up. Let's sleep on it. Somehow, I don't feel the old brains ticking at peak efficiency right now. When they dropped Spice at the Lycée, she hesitated before bidding the boys goodnight. Those stolen clothes worry me, she murmured. So please, don't take any chances. We'll watch it, Chris promised. 
Luckily, Apaches sleep with one eye open. As they drove off, Geronimo said, You know, Chunde, it might be smart for us not to bunk at the hotel tonight. Chris shot a thoughtful glance at his partner. You mean check out and find someplace else? Not even check out. If anybody comes looking for us in the wee hours, we'll just give them a nice long wait. That's a pretty good idea, but we may have trouble finding other accommodations with the festival on. What about Dijon? Geronimo suggested. It's only a few miles away. A city that size would give us plenty of cover. Chris nodded. Sounds like a good bet. The Alfa Romeo skirted around Brissy and headed east. Half an hour later, the two youths were registering at a small hotel in the olden-time capital of the Dukes of Burgundy. The next morning, they breakfasted on eggs and sausages at a small cafe near the hotel. What's our next move, fearless leader? said Geronimo. Chris mulled over the situation as he sipped his coffee. Ravosky, Fernac, Mouton. As far as I can see, the odds are about equal on all three of them. Looks as if we'll have to play it by ear. Can you be a bit more specific, please? Well, suppose I try phoning each one without giving my name. I drop a few hints and see how he reacts. Maybe their answers will give us a line onto which one is the real X. The Apache considered. Okay, it's worth a try, but how are you going to locate Fernac? I don't know yet. He shouldn't be too hard to run down, though, if he's our man. Chris decided to try Vavosky first. From a telephone booth, he called the Agricultural Institute. Disguising his voice and speaking French, he asked for the chemist. I'm sorry, but Monsieur Vavosky is not here, said the switchboard operator. He phoned in to say he would not be in today. We do a little work here during the festival, you see. Could I reach him at his residence? Chris inquired. I'm afraid not, monsieur. He was leaving early for a weekend on the Côte d'Azur. In fact, he phoned from somewhere on the road. But you should call him this evening at Saint-Tropez. He'll be staying at the Hotel de Palme. Merci. Hanging up, Chris reported the conversation. Something fishy there, eh? said the Apache. How come he leaves town all of a sudden after wearing that X mark on his hand last night? Just what I was wondering, Chris responded. Jerry, I have a hunch. Ravosky's our boy, and he may be expecting Omega to follow him. Why so? If Ravosky were an enemy agent trying to cut in on Skykill, he wouldn't be leaving town. He'd want to stick around and find out what cooks, right? Sounds reasonable. But suppose he's the real X. He might figure something went wrong last night, or maybe just that Omega was afraid to make contact with so many people around. Either way, Ravosky decides he'd better clear out. If there's been a foul-up, he'll be safer away from Bercy. On the other hand, if Omega is just being cautious, this will give him a chance to make the contact in different surroundings. Adds up, all right. But what about Fernac and Mouton? Are you still going to call them, too? Chris shook his head. One thing at a time. No sense in stirring up the broth any more than we have to. Let's put the sleeve on Ravosky first. If he doesn't produce, we'll try the other two. So we're off to Saint-Tropez on the Riviera, then. Roger, let's go back to Brissy and check out at the hotel there and pass word along to Spice. Then we'll hit the road south. 
At Percy, the desk clerk greeted the boys with a beaming smile. Ah, bonjour, messieurs. You have a letter, Monsieur Cool. It just arrived, express this morning from Paris. He fumbled in a slot behind the counter and then handed over the envelope in their room key. Merci, said Chris. By the way, we'll be checking out shortly. As they started up to their floor and the ancient creaking elevator, Geronimo murmured, Well, well, news from Uncle Phil, eh? Let's hope nothing drastic, said Chris. Once in their room, Chris slid open the envelope. He glanced at the leather inside, a chatty, hand-scrawled note about the latest doings of Uncle Phil and Aunt Maud, and tossed it in the wastebasket. Geronimo, meanwhile, got the toilet kit from his suitcase, removed its contents, and began converting it into a small microfilm projector. The false-bottom metal drinking cup unscrewed to provide a powerful set of lenses. Chris located a small black dot on the envelope, which looked like part of the typewritten address. He inserted it into the projector and switched on a tiny, high-intensity bulb. A white pillow slip served as the screen. Presently, as he adjusted the lens, the microdot message came into focus. Okay, break out the codebook engine. Geronimo took a European travel guidebook from their luggage and began checking out each unit of the message. Translated, the message read, Complete present mission soonest. Orders just received for you both to report to Vienna, April 30th. What? Geronimo exclaimed. Vienna's in Austria, and April 30th is next Sunday, just two days away. Why the sudden switch? Chris frowned thoughtfully. Must have something to do with the international conference. The president's flying to Vienna that day. Remember that clipping in Barone's pocket? Yes, now that you mention it, but where do we fit in? That doesn't give us much chance to get info on Skykill. We might swing it if we barrel down to the Riviera Pronto and Ravosky comes through. We could probably hop an airline flight to Vienna from Nice or Milan. Chris glanced at his wristwatch and added, I think we'd better call Uncle Phil first. If we snap to it, we can catch him on the 10 a.m. open transmission schedule. The boys checked out of the hotel hastily and drove off. Once they were out of Brissy, Geronimo pressed a button on the dashboard, causing a radio antenna to spear up from a rear fender. Then he tuned in the shortwave transceiver and scrambler and quickly made contact with Paris. Chris picked up the mic. 1E Kingston to Phil. Phil here. Go ahead, please. Chris gave the CIA station chief a rapid rundown on their situation and then asked, What about these orders to Vienna? Summit Power Conference, Grubb replied tersely. All agents on the continent are being routed there to beef up security when the president arrives. There's a special reason why Washington wants you two on hand. Really? What's that, sir? You know what this conference is about? Well, it was called to discuss a ban on the H-bomb and all atomic weapons, wasn't it? Right. Now then, Grubb went on. If any nation at the meeting has Skykill up its sleeve, that'll be a big trump card to bargain with. So it's important that you fill in the president on anything, anything at all that you've picked up on Skykill. The top scientific brains in our defense setup will be there to help analyze the information. Understood. Chris suppressed a faint feeling of butterflies in his stomach. By the way, Alexander Valud was at the Count's feet last night. A man was with him named Barone, 
He was carrying Omega's letter drop key. It might be worthwhile putting a tail on him. The boys caught a faint startled gasp over the radio speaker. Apparently you haven't heard, Grump said after a moment. Heard what? Valud and Barone crashed last night in Valud's private plane. Now it was Chris's turn to gasp. Any survivors? None. Better get a paper to read the story. Chris U-turned the car and headed back into Brucey. At a Café Tabac, the boys found a morning edition of the Dijon paper, Le Dispatch. It carried a full account of the crash. Valut's plane had taken off from Longvic Airfield near Dijon at 2 a.m. Twenty minutes later, it had crashed near Montbaud en route to Paris. The wreckage was widely scattered, as if the plane had come apart in midair. Just before the disaster, the pilot had radioed frantically, Ice is forming all over the plane. It's fantastic. The ship is going out of control. Chris and Geronimo exchanged stunned glances. Sounds like another job by the chiller, the Apache muttered. If it was, he has a long reach, Chris stared at his partner. Realize what this means, Jerry. If the chiller can knock a plane out of the sky, the gimmick he may be using, that may be Skykill itself.